0: many of them are in the amounts of hundreds of thousands of dollars to these public school systems. Um, One of the the public school systems who was part of the original lawsuit before the Supreme Court had an assessment of over $400,000. These are by no means outliers. And so the retirement system had this data in front of it. There were two different cap factors that had been attempted by the um, retirement system prior to the Supreme Court's decision. There was a cap factor of 4.8 and a cap factor of 4.5. The retirement system could have looked to see, hey, what are the burdens of those particular cap factors and how did they impact these individual employers? Now the third thing, uh, point that I wanted to, would want to make, Judge Murphy, is- and we,
1: hey, and Let me just ask this clarification and I'll I'll let you move on. But when we're saying individual employers, are we talking about school boards generally, and school systems generally throughout the state, or Harnack County, Mecklenburg County Schools, Haywood County Schools? Is that we're talking about those individual counties that you're saying should be analyzed, or school systems in general?
0: So I think it's neither, Your Honor. Um, What I'm saying is, what we're saying it should be in individual employers so not necessarily a specific county right but let's look at some hypotheticals let's look to see how these specific cap factors uh, uh, work in these hypothetical scenarios i think the point in the fiscal note is that the way that the analysis is presented in the fiscal note is here's how the 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 cap factor is going to impact employers in the aggregate right so employers that are in all employers that are in the retirement system. What I think that the fiscal note fails to do and what it really masks is the way that those individual um, assessments are really impacting individual employers. And so to your question, Dr. Murphy, I don't think it has to be a specific school system, right? But I do think that that in order to have a substantive analysis of those alternatives, they really needed to grapple with how those looked in the, in the real-world scenario, in real-world hypotheticals. Now, the retirement system says that would have been really hard for it to do, right, because, um, you know, until they get a particular retirement, there's a lot of these variables that go into determining what the... Um, additional contributions are gonna be under, the, under a particular cap factor. And that's, I think that's a little bit disingenuous, Your Honors. I mean, this really is, it's a multiplication and division. Now there are certain variables and there are certain factors that go into that particular equation, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a difficult thing to come up with a hypoth- hypothetical and put those variables in to see how a cap factor or different cap factors will impact a particular retirement. If I may your honor, I think an example that I think is pretty pertinent it would be in the Edgecombe County Board of Education case. Now that now that particular county is not here before you today, but it was a part of the record and was a part of the administrative proceedings before the Office of Administrative Hearings. And in that particular case, the Edgecombe County Board of Education was assessed under a cap factor of 4.8 that was later determined to be invalid by the Supreme Court, they received an assessment of around $94,000. Now, they went through the same process as the Harnett County Board of Education did here. They challenged the, the assessment. They the assessment was um, determined to be invalid under the Supreme Court's decision, and then they sought a refund, which they received. Now, they also received a new assessment, just like the Harnett County Board of Education here, but it was under the cap factor that was set by the rule that was adopted by the retirement system. Now that factor was 4.5. So it's a lower cap factor than the original cap factor under which it was assessed. And I want to talk a little bit briefly in a moment about how the cap factor works in order to elucidate this point. But, but what it, with respect to Edgecomb, when it was assessed under that cap factor of 4.5, its assessment went up. It went up to about $146,000. And so the point I'm trying to make, Your Honors, is that a three-point difference in the cap factor can make a really big, meaningful impact in the amount of an assessment that um, uh, an employer can receive. the other point that I think is really important is that the cap factor doesn't just control how much an employer may have to pay in additional contributions for a particular retirement, but it also controls how many retirements or which retirements are actually subjected to liability. Right. So the cap factor, um, it, it, it essentially says, you know, as you know, as you noted in the in the statute, it says it can only, um, uh, it can't impact any more than 0.75% of all retirements. And so there's a little bit of an inverse relationship, right? The higher the cap factor values, the higher that numerical value, the fewer retirements it's going to impact, and the lower those ultimate assessments are going to be. The lower the cap factor value, the, the bigger the scope, of the number of retirements that it is going to impact and the higher those assessments are gonna be. And so the CAF factor, as the Supreme Court noted in the Cabarrus County case, is an incredibly important piece of this whole equation, Your Honors. And that's why, um, in in looking at, and going through the process that the Supreme Court said, listen, you've got to go back and do this. And in going through that process, it was so important for the retirement system to really look and engage with those um, with those alternatives to see, hey, how does this particular cap factor, how does a 4.8, cap factor of 4.8, how would that impact this particular retirement? How would a cap factor of 4, 4.5 impact this particular retirement? Because it would really um, illuminate the big differences in those assessments that um, that uh, employers are being subjected to under this statute and under this particular cap factor. And so what we would say is, and, and I don't wanna interrupt if, if you have questions, Your Honor, but but what we would say simply is that, that they had all of this data at the time, they really should have spent that time, excuse me, they, as part of their analysis, they really should have looked at that data. Um, and instead, what we have is we have in the record the reason that we're adopting 4.5 as our cap factor is because it's what we did previously. We're gonna check a box. We're doing this because we need to. We did this previously. Let's go ahead and do this and move on. And and frankly, Your Honors, I would say that, you know, going through a process in order to reach a foreordained conclusion to me, that, that really does seem to me the very definition of a box-checking exercise. And it's, and it's, it's absolutely at, at odds with, I think, the Supreme Court held in the Cabarrus County case. But, I mean, I, I,
2: I think you would agree, ultimately, it is the, the retirement system, if they go through the process correctly or substantially correctly, um, has uh, ultimately has the authority to make the decision as to the, the cap factor, correct?
0: That's correct, Your Honor. Absolutely.
2: And so, I mean, I mean what? I mean, I, so on one hand, it seems like it's a very the, the, the argument is, is 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 procedural in the sense that you're saying they, they didn't substantially or com- comply with uh, with these processes. But I guess to to, to what extent, if if the if the retirement system can show that it did in fact check the boxes and as you say and, and do at least nominally the things that it was supposed to do what role does a does 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 a court have to to overturn that
0: so i think the the question really is and 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 i think i think the that the parties are really arguing about this is is box checking enough, right? I mean, it is, you're correct, Your Honor. It is a procedural, it is a process, right? It's a procedural argument. But I want to point, Your Honor, to what the Cabarrus County Court said in, 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 its, in its ruling um, in, in 2020. And what it did, um, is it specifically looked at um, the, 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 the cat factor itself, and to determine whether the cat factor um, needed to go through rulemaking. And what the Supreme Court said is that this is not just a ministerial act; it's a really important part of the operation of this statute. And so it said that one of the retirement systems' arguments there was that you know because there's an actuary involved, you know the actuary really provides this analysis, and, and you know we don't need to have rulemaking because of this analysis. And the court said no, that's not enough. You know it said that um, having the actuary involved it doesn't suffice to provide affected persons with the sort of procedural protections that are inherent in Administrative Procedure Act compliant rulemaking proceedings. Nor does it obviate the importance of public input into the adoption of a cap factor, and here's the most important piece, Your Honors, or reduce the importance of the additional analytical steps that administrative agencies must take in making decisions of the apparent magnitude of this one. And in fact, the court directly after that cites the very provisions that we're discussing, Your Honors. And so I would say that yes, it is a procedural process, right, a a procedural argument about a process, right, but there is more to it than simply box checking. I would say that in order to to be consistent, with what the Supreme Court has said, and in order to be consistent with what the APA has said um, in the the section on um, requiring that you that you have two that you consider two alternatives and give a reason for why those those alternatives were rejected, I would say that 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 absolutely is something that an agency must do when it's considering a rule that will have a substantial economic impact. It's not just box checking, um, and so I think here. You know, I think what we do have is box checking, and I think that in order to comply with these two, um, both the Supreme Court and the APA, I think that that um, the retirement system didn't even come close to it um, in this particular case. Uh,
2: and and I have my own procedural um, hangup in this case, and it's uh, this is uh, uh, it's, it was summary judgment e- even before the administrative law judge, right? Is this this was a summary judgment?
0: Case. That's correct, Your Honor. on it. it. Was summary judgment before the before the office um, of administrative hearings? And
2: s- so I guess the, the the question I have, and similar question I asked in an earlier argument, is what you know is is it your contention that that there are issues of fact uh, that might still need to be decided? You know, what is you know is is, is whether the, the the retirement system substantially complied? Was that a was that a fact question that should have been decided by the ALJ or was you know so anyway? So point being, are there questions of fact that this needs to go back for? Or, or is it your contention that summary judgment was appropriate for somebody in this case?
0: Um, great question, Your Honor. I, and it, it's our condition that summary judgment was appropriate for somebody at this particular juncture. I mean, the parties agree and have agreed from the beginning that there are not fact issues here, right? Um, that you know, to the extent that there's a question of whether the um, uh, whether the uh, retirement system complied with what they needed to do under the Administrative Procedures Act. That's a question of law. Um, and so the, the parties have never disputed that there are that there are fact issues here. So we would simply say that summary judgment was granted for the wrong party, Your Honor. Um, Your Honors, I'd, I'd like to, unless you have other questions about the APA, I would also like to address the other argument in our case regarding um, the impermissible retroact- retroactive application of the cap factor statute um, to this retirement. So I kind of want to start this particular piece of the argument with a a little hypothetical of my own. So imagine you're playing Monopoly with your kids, right? Your daughter lands on Boardwalk, which isn't owned by anyone, um, so she doesn't have to pay anything. And because of this, um, and a few turns later, after you've passed go and you've gone around the board a couple of times your son buys boardwalk and he buys it he puts a hotel on it and then he goes to your daughter and he says demands that she pay him rent for the night that she spent on boardwalk a couple of turns previously and she says that's not fair and i think you would rightfully instruct your son yeah that's not fair that's not how we play the game in this particular case and your honors what I would say is with respect to the application of the new cap factor rule to this previous retirement, this is the way the retirement system has tried to play the game. It's asking this court to allow it to cure its original failure to adopt a valid rule by applying a newly adopted rule retroactively to retirements that occurred well before the rule's effective date. And so what my client's saying, what the Harnett County Board of Education is saying is that's just simply not fair, Your Honors.
1: Are you suggesting that there's a line that should be be drawn somewhere between January 1st of 2015 and when the rule was adopted? Or is it everything before the rule was adopted? Uh,
0: if, I, if I understand your question, you're well, I,
1: I, guess, I guess it comes down to we have to build into this statute that it was subject to rulemaking. The statute doesn't become effective until January 1st, 2015, mm-hmm. Section I is there any authority to start a rulemaking process before the effective date?
0: So that's a great question. Now, the the, the agency, I believe, has the authority to to um, go through temporary rulemaking procedures, to adopt a temporary rule. In fact, they did they did adopt a rule in October, or excuse me, they didn't adopt it, but they, they set a rule in October of 2014 before the statute went into effect. That was the first, um, not a rule, they set a cap factor. That was the first cap factor that was at issue in the Cabarrus County case um, before the Supreme Court. So there were two cap factors at issue in that case. There was the one that was set in October of 2014, and then there was another one that was set in October of 2015. So the retirement system was able to go and and set a cap factor and should have been able to go through the rulemaking process in order to effectuate this in time for the statute with the, the statute's effective date, and they just were not, they didn't do it. They didn't go through the rulemaking process, they didn't go through that important process that the, that the Supreme Court later eventually said really applies here. Um, and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to ask this court to cure that deficiency. Now for the purpose of, of our discussion here, I think there's really three uh, fundamental principles of retroactivity that are at play here. The first is that there's a long standing presumption against the retroactive application of statutes or other types of legislative enactments. And then, second, as a result of this presumption, enactments are presumed to act prospectively only, unless it's clear that the legislative body intended that they be applied retroactively. And then finally, the third principle is really to determine whether an enactment operates retroactively. Courts have looked at whether that enactment creates a new obligation or whether it increases liability for past conduct, whether it attaches new legal consequences as to events completed before the enactment, or whether it impairs vested rights.
2: But to what extent was the retirement system's action in this case more a function of, of, of the litigation and, and responding to the fact that they lost in the trial court and they lost in the court of appeals and they lost in the Supreme Court. And, you know, sort of taking that, uh, t- taking the approach of like, you know, yes we're gonna continue with this litigation but in the background we're gonna start, operate, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna engage in the rulemaking process so therefore, if in fact we end up, you know, ultimately losing this litigation, you know, we haven't lost the time, we can go back and have a rule that's that complies with the rulemaking process to set, set a cap factor that's going to apply to all these, these cases that were before us back then.
0: Right. So, Your Honor, I mean, I, I don't—we certainly don't dispute that that is absolutely the reason that the retirement system went through this process. I mean, they're, they're pretty transparent about it in the documents and the record um, is, hey, we're doing this because we have to. Right, um, they say we're we're going to do this because we have to. We're going to adopt this same cap factor that we had set previously because that's what we set previously. And there's a good bit of of um, you know um, I guess uh, dialogue in the minutes um, about you know why this is why this has been done somewhat grudgingly because of the litigation. Now we certainly don't you know I think if the if the retirement system had really adequately engaged with the rulemaking process and and had and had gone through to adopt what we would consider a a rule that is compliant you know has gone through those analytical processes that we discussed earlier you know i don't think the litigation itself the fact that it was done as a result of litigation would invalidate that your honor um, but i think regardless of that I, I don't think that really speaks to the principles of retroactivity here i think those those are applicable regardless of whether or not the retirement system is doing this as a result of litigation or well,
2: not well but in this context though wouldn't you know uh, un- unlike a, a legislative enactment uh, judicial decisions may act with retroactivity, right? So if so the Supreme Court decides in this case that, that, you know, that, that the rulemaking process was applicable,
0: mm-hmm.
2: why, why wouldn't that case law have some retroactivity to things even before the enactment of the statute?
0: Well, I think that's a great question, Your Honor. I mean, I think one one place that I would point yourselves to is I think it's the case Gardner v. Gardner. It's it's cited in our briefs at page twenty six. I think that's 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 somewhat on point here. And in that case, um, it, it had to do with a venue requirement um, that was litigated in the Superior Court. Um, there was a. Um, decision at the superior court level that um, that the venue for this particular case had to be in a particular county right um, and then later the venue statute was changed right in order to that that would have if, if that statute were applied retroactively, that could potentially, you know, go back and, and, and change the decision. And, and the court there said, no, we're not gonna, we do have a court decision here, you know, we're not going to step in and, and impair that court decision. And I think what we have here is, you know, we have a couple of different court decisions that are applicable. You're right, Your Honor, we have the Cabarrus County, um, the, the, the Supreme Court decision. Now that Supreme Court decision, nothing in that decision says, you know, when they go back and do this rulemaking, they may apply that rule retroactively. I think that's, t- to your point, is, court, I get, I I don't know, to be honest, I don't know of any of the cases that necessarily say that courts can go back and say, you can apply this retroactively, but in this case, the Supreme Court did not say that, right? Um, but you also have, you have the- but,
2: but sort of by by its nature, it has to be re- applied retroactively, right? And, you know, for to, 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 to employ the Supreme Court decision in this case, you had to, all the way through to get the Supreme Court decision for the Supreme Court to decide whether or not this rulemaking process was required or not in this case. And the Supreme Court said, yes, it was. The retirement system engaged in the rulemaking process.
0: I think I would respectfully disagree with that, Your Honor. Um, I, I don't think, I think that what, what was before the Supreme Court was whether or not rulemaking was required, right? It, it was not whether we needed to apply this rule to all of the other, um, Uh, retirements that that preceded it in order to effectuate the the effective date of the statute. Frankly, that's what's before you all today. Right? but that's not what the the court of the, the Supreme Court was dealing with in Cabarrus County your Honor um, and so you know I would say here you know what you did have is you had um, a a statute that was applied to the retirement in effect in 20, 2017 um, the distinction I think that that's really important and that I want to make sure that, that the court understands is that what we have here is we have a cap factor that determines not only the amount of of liability but liability in and of itself and so I know I'm going into my rebuttal time but I'd like to finish my my statement here Um, but liability itself your honors and I think that's the distinction here right is that prior to um, the enactment of this cap factor when the Harnett County Board of Education was originally assessed it had no liability under the statute because there was no valid cap factor in effect and that's why applying this cap factor retroactively really um, impairs its obligations, or not impairs, but creates new obligations and new ob- and new liabilities, and why we would s- say that the presumption against retroactively is manifestly um, the reasons for that presumption are manifestly evident here, Your Honor. If the court has other questions, I'm happy to take them. Otherwise, I'll sit down and reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you.
3: May please the court? Uh, I'm Ryan Park from the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent, uh, along with my colleague, Olga Vizitskaya de Brito, uh, the uh, Retirement Systems Division uh, of the Department of State Treasurer. Our state's pension system is funded principally by state employees and the state employers that employ them. Pension spiking is a phenomenon where a retiree receives far more in pension benefits than they contributed to the system that funds it. And so, I think a helpful analogy is, when a group of friends go to a meal and they decide to share a meal, the pension spiking, what it does is, if if everyone decides to share the meal equally, uh, the person who orders the steak, the $40 steak, and the person who orders the $10 salad have to pay the same amount. And an overwhelming majority of our General Assembly believed that arrangement was unfair. And so in 2014, they enacted the anti-pension spiking law. And what that says, is that every retirement after January 1st, 2015, is subject to adjustment under the cap factor set by the retirement system. And then in multiple places, it says that the state employer, quote, shall pay the additional uh, amount that's required under the pension spiking law as calculated under the cap factor. So there are three basic points that I'd like to make uh, on the specific arguments that are uh, before the court today. So first, the retirement system engaged in a rigorous and comprehensive 19-month rulemaking process that fully complied with all the APA's many requirements, and that process involved three state agencies, the retirement system, the OSBM, which is uh, housed in the governor's office, and the Rules Review Commission, which approved the rule and certified that it complied with the APA. Second, even if there were any minor deviations from the APA, it substantially complied with the Administrative Procedures Act, and therefore is still valid. And third, there is no dispute that the anti-pension spiking statute is being applied prospectively here. The General Assembly expressly required that the retirement in question here, all retirements after 2015, have to be adjusted under the cap factor. So as the ALJ recognized and the trial court affirmed, the only way to effectuate this statutory command is to apply the cap factor retroactively to the retirements that took place during the interim time. And and finally, if I may, I think it's helpful to step back and and understand the novelty of the arguments that petitioner is making here. In the 47-year history of the APA, uh, I've been been, able to identify, and there has been no case that's been raised in this case, uh, in, in the briefing, where any agency rule has ever been invalidated under the APA provisions that petitioner cites here. And likewise, there's no case that I'm aware where an agency rule has been invalidated as impermissibly retroactive uh, by any of the state's courts. Uh, And indeed, the the three cases that uh, Petitioner cites in their brief on page 26 and 27 uh, that involve the North Carolina courts, in all of those cases, the court actually upheld the retroactive application of the agency rule in question. Uh, And in Rate Bureau, uh, it was a very similar situation where the initial rate had been vacated based on a court decision, and this court held that it was proper to apply the new rate to the conduct uh, that predated the new revised rate. Uh, and it's a really similar situation, because the reason why the court held that, and the reason why that makes sense, is because there has to be an insurance rate. And, and so here, the statute says there has to be a cap factor. It, it's not permissible simply to say, in, until there's a cap factor that's not in place, uh, s- simply it just doesn't apply. Uh, and, and that's similar to the insurance rate uh, situation. Uh, now, I think if I may, I'd like to skip ahead to a couple of the points uh, that uh, my colleague on the other side made that I think uh, misapprehend the record in this case, and I think it makes this a much easier case uh, than, than those hypothetical facts. So I, I'll direct the court to, to page 20, 42 and 43 of the record. So uh, my colleague stated that there was no statement as to why the 4.5 cap factor was selected as opposed to the. Uh, 4.2 to 4.8 range, and, uh, and, and I'll just read from the fiscal note itself. It says, given that we now have perfect hindsight, we can estimate the amount that would have been invoiced to agencies for retirements with effective dates in 2016 uh, based on the prior cap factors. Uh, and so based on that retrospective assessment of all the retirements that happened in 2015 and 2016, which my colleague says the, ag- the re- system should have done. They said, and this is on the next page, um, we are choosing, well, this I'm paraphrasing, we're choosing the 4.5 factor uh, because of the, quote, political opposition to the policy uh, that would arise from a lower cap factor and the fact uh, that the lowest possible factors would result in a 49% increase in costs to spiking employers. And you can see just from arithmetic that would be, you know, several million dollars more uh, that would have been imposed on spiking employers if they had chosen the lower cap factor. And so you know that's the reason that was given that they had a current policy, it was working, uh, it was operating as it should have, and and there's nothing wrong with an agency as a basis for its decision making to say we have a current policy, it's working, uh, you know by the way that's what the retirement system did in 2020 uh, when it uh, had its uh, every five year review, it said we have a 4.5 cap factor, it's working, and we'll keep that that cap factor, uh, and that's what they did here, and then they said you know if we lowered it, it would increased costs to spiking employers by about fifty percent, uh, and that would generate opposition to our rule and that's why we're choosing just to, to, to stay the course um, the, the the other what I think is a misapprehension of the record and I would <laughs> direct the court to page twenty nine to thirty one of the record uh, now you see these uh, relevant charts now it's you know it's a it's a very dense document uh, this fiscal note uh, but on, on twenty nine so there it says you know there have been 62 retirements in, in 2015 and 2016. So it is assessing all the retirements that had been subject to the cap factor uh, during this interim period. And it said that led to invoices of 6.5 million. Uh, and then it, at the bottom of the page and then to the next pages, it says, well, let's, let's study these retirements, just as my colleague says they should have done. Uh, and they have, have these tables where they say, well, here are, here's where the burdens uh, have lied by type of employer school systems, the UNC system, local governments, state agencies, and then it describes the burdens that had been in place. Now, the, you know, I, I think there was also a uh, discussion, at least in, in, in the briefing, uh, about the fact that uh, the agency should have considered the comments and the objections that were raised by the school systems, uh, and, and they did. Uh, this is page 38 and 39 of the record, sorry to make you uh, shift around, um, but there's two entire pages uh, of the fiscal note where they're specifically studying and describing the objections that had been made by school systems, saying, you, you know, I think it's reasonable. It's a reasonable objection that uh, this might affect negotiations between school systems and their highly compensated employees, like the superintendents uh, that are at issue in these cases. And so they describe the problem. They describe how they reached out to attorneys representing super, uh, school systems. They had. They actually even quote language in school board uh, superintendent contracts, uh, and they explain how school boards had protected themselves from these obligations by negotiating for specific provisions in employment contracts. Uh, so again, that's exactly what a petitioner says we should have done. That's what uh, the, the retirement system did. Now, I think that the, the issue was raised about uh, the difference between uh, a scope of liability question and whether there's liability at all in the first place. Uh, and here, uh, respectfully, I think that that misunderstands the nature of our retirement system. R- the retirement system is funded from all state agencies, uh, and the majority of state agencies, well, <laughs> state agencies receive the majority of their funding, uh, just like petitioner, from the state. So, Harnett County is a good example. It has around a $200 million annual budget. Around $130 million of that comes from the state, from the General Assembly's appropriations, and under the pension statutes, it's required to give around $10 million to the retirement system to fund employee pensions. So there is a massive scope of liability that already exists, the $10 million that the pension statutes require uh, the Harnett County to to contribute to the pension system. Uh, And what the cap factor is, is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of this incredibly broad uh, pension system. Uh, and so it's increasing the scope of liability in this narrow circumstances uh, circumstance uh, that you know, applies to a few dozen retirements every year out of the thousands of retirements uh, every year. Uh, so it's just a tiny part of this broader system. Uh, on uh, on the Edgecombe County uh, example, Your Honor, uh, I think what's helpful to understand there is that's really the, the Rate Bureau case. So there was um, you know several employers. Uh, and including at least seven school systems that were subject to the 4.8 cap factor uh so it's a smaller number that then would apply today and they didn't ask for refunds and so there was no additional assessment made to those uh you know school systems and other employers but Edgecombe county asked for a refund and so the refund was given and then the the retirement system was in a situation where it said well we are under a statutory mandate it says we shall issue to adjust uh, the the pension obligations and Well, we have a current rate and so they decided to apply the current rate uh, and that's similar to the rate Bureau case uh, But we've never interpreted our authority as allowing for kind of retroactive increases in payments that had already been made
1: what, if we interpret it how the, the ALJ did and how you'd how like us to what stops the RSD from being able to interpret it that way in the future. You know, I, I, yep. I note on page thirty-nine of your brief, there's no basis for such speculation and certainly nothing in the record suggests that RSD intends to engage in such a practice, but and that could, could change tomorrow in terms of intent or whoever's there on, on the on the board and with the treasurer's office and everything like that. So just because there's not a current intent, unless there's and an affirmative lack of authority—that's that, that, troubling to me. So, talk me through how there's not authority to, if the cap number changes in the future, either um, take more money retroactively or return money retroactively.
3: So, so, I can represent to the court today that that is not how the retirement system interprets its authority under the pension spiking statute. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, there's nothing in the text of the statute that decides it either way. we think implicit in how it's structured is the idea that this is a one-time contribution payment Uh, and there has been uh, some additional amendments to the statute that i think have clarified that now these are uh, you know this is later uh, this is 2021 um, but you know there's some language that uh, makes clear that you know if you make the payment uh, then that is satisfies the obligation to make the payment Uh, i think the other thing i would say that i i uh think would hopefully reassure Your Honor is that uh, I would concede that if the retirement system attempts to do that, to, uh, uh, you know, kind of double capping is uh, w- one way to put it, that that might be arbitrary and capricious and contrary to law because it is not authorized by the statute. Um, but we interpret our authority, there's a one-time contribution payment that has to be applied to every retirement after this effective date of the statute. I think, uh, if if I could return to, uh, I think, a a helpful kind of thought experiment on on the monopoly uh, example, which which I quite like. Uh, You know, I think that really what we're dealing with here is something like this, right? There is a rule that says you have to get a certain amount of money when you pass Go. And that's the statute here. You you know, a certain amount of money has to be paid, or, or there's a certain set of rules. And then the dad says it's $200. And so they operate under the $200 for a couple of years. And then uh, the mom comes r- along later and says, yep, that's $200. Uh, and therefore, you know, under the rules of the family, it set it it's t- at $200. You know, That's pretty much the situation we're in here, where the first assessment was for the exact same amount, based on the exact same cap factor. Uh, petitioner immediately paid it. And for three years, that was the status quo while we litigated whether the cap factor had to be set by rule or it could be set by resolution. Uh, And then later, uh, after all the parties had been operating under that resolution, uh, there was a rule applied to clarify that the the same rate applies, the same $200 uh, apply. Uh, And uh, we interpret the rate bureau and this court's retroactivity uh, jurisprudence to allow that to happen. Uh, Again, we have not been able to find, and I don't believe that anyone has identified any case in the history of this court, our Supreme Court, where an agency rule has been uh, invalidated for being impermissively retroactive.
1: Is there anything in the record, one way or the other, suggesting any consideration of this retroactivity in the analysis um, in setting the cap factor? Uh,
3: Yes, Your Honor. I mean, it's not uh, phrased in those terms, uh, but I think uh, in the letters that the retirement system sent to Petitioner and other school systems, as well as you know, the beginning of the fiscal note, uh, they basically have always embraced the interpretation of the statute that the ALJ and the trial court did, which is, you know, pretty simple. It's, there's a statute that says we have to uh, make this adjustment. Uh, It's a statutory mandate on the retirement system. I think if uh, there's, you know, you raise questions about standing and who would have, you know, the ability to sue, but, you know, if they're violating a statutory mandate, that says for this category of retirees there has to be this adjustment, Uh, I think that would take them out of compliance with the law. Uh, And so this entire effort has been an attempt to comply with the statute that says you have to adjust all the retirements based on this, uh, based on a cap factor that the retirement system has the discretion to decide.
2: So what I'm hearing is that, first of all, any time I play Monopoly, I should do so under a reservation of rights um, <laughs> But, uh, But <laughs> um, uh, more substantively, th- so there, the, there, there's an interplay of a couple of things in this case. Obviously, we have, we, we have the statute, you know, we have the, the APA, but then we have the Supreme Court decision in Cabarrus County. And so I guess the question becomes, to what extent does the discussion in Cabarrus County uh, create a, uh, a requirement, a duty on the part of the retirement system to maybe engage in what might be described as, as, as rulemaking plus, not just merely going through the statute and checking the boxes, but actually um, making some, some true record of, of, uh, of the concerns and the issues that were raised in, in Cabarrus County specific to this case?
3: So I think there there are two uh, points I would make in response to that concern, Your Honor. First is, we believe just on the record that there's nothing really that petitioner has asked us to do that isn't reflected in the fiscal note. Uh, You know, again, it's a dense document and uh, I have it now committed to memory for for the next, you know, half hour and I'm happy to to walk through any of the concerns that were raised. I think they are addressed in the fiscal note. Uh, But second, I think that, and more broadly, the Administrative Procedures Act, it's called the Administrative Procedures Act. It's designed to require certain procedures before an agency can act that have to be roughly uniform from action to action. And so it really is a box-checking exercise. There's nothing in the Administrative Procedures Act that requires the procedures to affect the substantive determination that is reached by the agency. Uh, Now, uh, of course, there are, when you engage in procedure, I think, you know, the wisdom of the statute is that when you engage in procedures, it requires you to consider objections and concerns uh, and give public reasons for why you are accepting them or or rejecting them and and continuing your current policy or changing your policy. Uh, But there, there is nothing, I think, in Cabarrus County that required anything other than they comply with the procedural statute and the procedural requirements in the APA. I think you know and Judge Murphy m- mentioned this uh, you know the other kind of framing point I- I'd like to make is is the one that, that you were impl- uh, you know referring to which is that it's a mathematical exercise if you accept the proposition that the retirement system has to set a cap factor uh, and you know there's a second postulate that the cap factor has to affect some retirements uh, there's really only a narrow ra- range of numbers that uh, that uh, The retirement system could possibly choose and it's not like a you know maybe a prototypical regulation like an environmental control statute pollution control statute where the General Assembly could say you know you're you have to take certain measures to ensure clean water and there's really a whole wide range of potential policy solutions that can be really nuanced and difficult uh, and you have to assess the relative burdens on different re- agencies, uh, on different regulated parties and that sort of thing. Here, it's just a number. Uh, and there there really isn't a lot of policymaking discretion that the retirement system had. Uh, and so there's. I don't know if there's anything more they could have said than we choose a middle ground number because if we choose a higher number, more people are going to be mad about it. And, and that's what they said.
2: And and as, I, as I'm hearing, the state's position is that, you know, interpreting the statute, there, there's, there's no scenario under which there is no cap factor. The, the legislature mandates that, that, there be a cap factor, which is why calculating a cap factor that may apply to prior retirements isn't necessarily a, a, a retroactivity issue at all. Yes, Your Honor. That's our position that,
3: you know, I think it's really important to separate the statute and the rule. So the statute of course is only being applied prospectively this is a 2017 retirement and the statute was passed in 2014 with the 2015 effective date and so it's a much narrower question less you know philosophical less you know it evokes fewer constitutional concerns about the legislature's authority to, to change the laws when there has been no without notice and without rel- with you know disrupting reliance interests here there's a statute that everyone sees that says you know this reti- if you retire after a certain date the employer is going to have to uh, pay a certain amount based on this number. And then there was a number that was passed. And it was passed through procedures that this court and our Supreme Court held were uh, were invalid. And so they went through the process again and, uh, and checked all the boxes and gave minimal consideration to all the reasons why they should have uh, imposed a less burdensome number, and they chose not to. Uh, and so there was notice to everyone that they had to pay a cap factor uh, and in these particular circumstances, I think this is the wisdom of the rape bureau case. You know, there are not these concerns about settled expectations and reliance. They paid the same amount, uh, and now that the procedures have been followed, that same amount is now being assessed today.
2: So the so I mean I, sort of sort of related question. So what really was the mandate of the from the Supreme Court here? Was it was it simply to to wipe out the cap factor? or or was it to you know because there was no rulemaking process yeah. or or was it more um, so i'll say a remand in that sense to um to to come up with a cap factor through a proper process
3: yeah that, that i think the apply. i think the latter your honor and i you know it's helpful to think through this court's authority so say we didn't have pages 42 and 43 of the record, which we think puts this issue aside, would say you know, they'd ne- there was just no evidence whatsoever that they had ever considered an alternative. There was no alternative fact- factor presented to the board, and uh, they never gave a reason for why they just were not going to consider alternatives. Uh, and this, if this court held that violated the APA, then I think there would be a vacate and a remand for the retirement system to do it again uh, under proper procedures. And, you know, that is a difference in degree, but similar in kind to what the Supreme Court said in Cabarrus County, which is you, you, you promulgated this, this cap factor through improper procedures to so go back and do it again. Um, but, you know, our fundamental proposition uh, is that this is pretty similar to, you know, a rate-setting situation. You just can't have a situation where there aren't insurance rates. You know, the rate bureau and the commissioner of insurance have to say what the insurance rates are for an automobile, and uh, it's, you can't just say you have to give insurance away for free or something. And under the anti-pension spiking law, that's what the General Assembly told the retirement system. You can't be giving pension, you know, retirement annuities without adjusting them under the cap factor, and if you don't make those adjustments, you're violating the statute. Uh, and so really, we're, we're just trying to comply with their statutory obligations. I think that is... Well, I guess the last thing I'll say, you know, and there is obviously happy to take any questions, uh, is this entire discussion operates under three very strong overlapping presumptions that that favor agency action, just generally. So there is the substantial compliance standard, which basically means if there are minor deviations from the statute, if you've done the big things right, then uh, the rule is valid. Uh, the second is, you know, anything that relates to the, the fiscal note, uh, there is an explicit statutory provision that says as long as the agency acts in good faith, the, you know, the any mistakes in preparing the fiscal note cannot be a basis for invalidating the rule. Uh, and I don't think there's been any allegation of bad faith, at least, here. Um, and then the third is, and this is not discussed in, in the briefs, but, uh, so I apologize, but is this, you know, rules review commission process. So this is a statute that says, If the Rules Reviews Commission approves a rule, then there's a presumption that it's valid, a rebuttable presumption, obviously, uh, that it's valid. And, you know, that's how rules are issued in our state. There's this legislatively appointed body that approves every formal rule, and they're charged with doing what this court is doing, uh, which is seeing whether uh, the process complied with the APA. And when that happens, uh, through kind of an, Interbranch dialogue, then courts have to at least presume that the rule complies with the APA.
1: So with that, thank you, Your Honor. We're showing about four minutes left.
0: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, so briefly, what I'd like to do is respond to my my colleagues' discussion about the position of the retirement system that they don't intend to go back and apply cap, factor, uh, cap factors retroactively. And to your question, Judge Murphy, I think actually what we do have is we don't uh, we don't have a limiting principle here because I think the difference between this case and the Rate Bureau case is that there, you know, yes, there have to be insurance rates. Everybody is subject to insurance rates here not every employer is going to be subject to the cap factor. That's because, or excuse me, to the pension cap statute, because the cap factor determines that whether or not they're going to be subject to liability. So the the absurdity here, Your Honors, is that if, for example, um, there is a new lower cap factor set in the future, right, it's going to cover a larger scope of retirement. Right? It's not simply just going to change the amount. It's going to cover a larger scope of retirements. And so what the retirement system is saying is that they have a statutory mandate to make sure that every retirement after January 1, 2015, that is subjected to the pension cap statute is subject to an adjustment. Right? Well, under a lower cap factor um, from 4.8 or 4.5, which are the two cap factors that have been used up to this point, that rate, that scope of retirements is going to broaden extensively now what we would typically say is that Okay, prospectively, that scope of retirement broadens extensively, but I think under their logic, they would have to go back to January 1, 2015 and look at retirements that did not trigger liability under the previous cap factor rules in order to determine if now they do trigger liability under this new lower cap factor rule. And I think that's the real crux of the matter here, Your Honors. Is I, I, It feels to me like they they really are trying to say on the one hand, well, yes, we have this statutory mandate to say that every retirement after January 1, 2015 is subject to an adjustment. But yet on the other hand, but we're not going to actually go and do that. We're only going to do it. And I I say this, you know, up to this point, they've only done it so far with respect to the school systems who have... um, who have actually challenged the assessments, right? I, I don't know that there's anything in the record that demonstrates that they've they've recalculated the assessments um, or actually gone back to see if other um, uh, retirements are uh, triggering liability under this cap factor of four point five that was adopted by the rule. And so that's what I would I would say, Your Honors, is I think there you know there, there's not a limiting principle here based on um, the position that that they would like that they would like to take and they would like this court to take in terms of retroactivity. I think the other thing I would say, Your Honors, is, is, is it would sort of eviscerate the purpose of the APA, right? I mean, if if we're going to allow agencies to go back and correct their mistakes if they if they if they fail to adopt a rule the right way, if they don't go through the rulemaking process at all, if we're gonna say, it's fine, you could go back and correct your mistakes and then we can apply everything back retroactively, it, it really, to me, seems, seems, Your Honor, is, is why do we have the APA at all in that, at that point? I think it, it undercuts what the Supreme Court was saying in Cabarrus County about the important analytical, analytical steps that need to be taken, and I think it really, um, you know, I think raises the question of, of, you know, why we have this process altogether. Um, so, Your Honors, I, for that reason, um, you know, I, I would request um, and we would request that this court Um, reverse the decision of the superior court um, and remand this case for judgment in uh, in favor of my client, the Harnett County Board of Education.
1: Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. All right. And that would conclude the business of the court for today.